Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Well, it's been quite a year, everyone. We got our shit together enough to start doing interview podcasts every week, which is no small feat for a podcast that's just trying to break through the rest of the film and TV world like everyone else. We've had tons of great guests from Sean Baker to Flying Lotus and everything in between. And as I said in a previous episode of Indie Film Weekly, we're all really proud about the type of resource this podcast has become. Before every interview, I'll take the time to remind our guests that this is a different sort of interview than the other ones they've been doing at the press junket or the festival or what have you. We're not overtly interested in hearing about what makes their movie great. We want to frame these episodes as educational gems with takeaways from their experiences that every one of our listeners can put into practice. In that sense, I really think we've succeeded. If you went back and listened to every single one of our interview episodes that came out this year, I'm positive that you'll come out with more than enough information to get yourself started on making your film. You'll be all out of excuses. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be leading you through some of our best clips of 2017. So if you haven't heard all of our interview podcasts, at least now you'll get some of those pearls of advice that may end up helping you down the road. So without further ado, here's our first flashback from an episode called How Stupid Videos Led to a $5 million Deal for Brigsby Bear and an 11-Year Trip to Killing Ground. It takes us all the way back to January at the very place where the podcast all started, Park City, Utah, for 2017's edition of the Sundance Film Festival. This is me talking to the director of the hilarious film Brigsby Bear, Dave McCary, as well as Kyle Mooney's partner in screenwriting, Kevin Costello. They've all been making films together since middle school and reflect upon their journey to making their debut feature film. The secret is to keep putting out shitty stuff until you get something so good that people actually want to watch it. Later at the festival, Brigsby sold to Sony Picture Classics for a cool $5 million. Here's the clip. Let's talk a little bit about the journey to get to this point where you had, where you got the opportunity to make the feature. I know you guys were childhood friends. Um, your mess, the message in the film is one that definitely resonates with our film, with our audience, as far as like just go out, do as much as you can, take whatever resources you can. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I mean, that my whole experience in in discovering film and and how to do this. This crazy business is just doing it like not thinking about the the enter- the industry and and really just thinking about how can me and my friends make shit that's gonna make us laugh and and uh and so yeah we just we actually kyle uh who's a co-writer with kevin and, and stars in the film his dad bought us a, a camera that we had like picked out we were super poor and his dad's got some cash and we were like what kind of camera was it? It was a Panasonic ZVX100B, and we I shot almost every Good Neighbor video on that until like the very end. We did a few where we actually got a DP, but I I truly didn't know what I was doing. I just like went online or read the tutorials and you know just figured it out. But I was also go- I went to film school. Um, and I'm not even gonna say where I went, but I I dropped out. Such a fucking waste of money, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was just so clear. It was around the time that YouTube was like a clear place to just practice and, and make mistakes. And um, yeah, we just did it. And that was the best thing we could have done is just like 
we were, we were definitely feeding off the energy of like, oh, we could people can see our shit, and uh, let's just be silly and and have fun and learn how to do this. And there's a, a number of videos that I am just mortified by that they are, still exist on the internet. Uh, but I'm I'm just so grateful that we had the chance to to fuck up so much, yeah. So we could now hopefully not fuck up. On movies. How long <laughs> have we will? How long have you guys been making videos? Like, if you were to count from when you first got that camera, when was that? Uh, that camera we probably got 2005, so 11 years ago. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of collaboration, and I know there's a lot of filmmakers out there who are such geniuses, but really need to be hands-on in every single aspect and I, I I like that to a certain degree but I also like the idea of finding someone who I think is brilliant like for instance our, our DP uh, Christian Spranger who was recommended to us by one of our producers and he did Atlanta and, and Last Man on Earth and um, Baskets and I just loved his use of natural light and I just trusted him so much it was so different than me shooting our shitty videos on a DVX and not knowing I hating using lights A B not knowing any of the terminology truly I still am like I'm hearing terms and I'm like pretending like oh, yeah, yeah yeah for sure use this yeah laser. open it up a little bit <laughs> fake it to make it uh, and it really was a lot of faking it till I, I made it uh, not to say that I've made anything. Well, you have. <laughs> well, I just made one Look thing. Look around, D. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it really is just uh, letting go of of control and just trusting uh, the writers and trusting the, and really I want them to be um, part of the conversation in so many decisions because we are uh, the best we can be when we're all talking about it and having the conversation and, and not one asshole going like oh it's gonna be my way or fuck you guys yeah making art for its own sake it, uh, it can often feel like uh, crazy or insane or, or why am I doing this and I feel like we were definitely like in we, we've all been in that place with the stuff we've made and um, it, it just it, it, you, you have to do it and you have to have something to say and you have to just like trust that um, that that desire to get it out there and that desire to make it you know even though there's no clear path towards where it's going to end up or where it's going to lead um, just following that that passion I feel like is the only thing you can do yeah. um, and well, at I've the got- time we started writing Brigsby it's not like oh yeah we're gonna this is <laughs> you know we're gonna ride this ship all the way to <laughs> Right. party town like it was just it was something that I knew that I loved and I just yeah. and it made it a priority so I've got another cliche don't give up yeah great that's <laughs> never heard that one before so. cool guys well I really appreciate you guys taking the time out All of this right. yeah. it was nice meeting you thank it's you awesome. very much yeah All thanks right. thanks man next is a clip from an episode called how to start a production company from film school to raising money out of your bedroom office There's no easy way to ask for money for your movie, but funnily enough, accepting just that fact will make the whole process go by less painfully. At Sundance, Emily Booter sat down with David Ethan Shapiro, who had come to the festival after successfully producing Kristen Stewart's debut short film, Come Swim. Shapiro himself started his own production company as soon as he got out of college, and gives some advice on how you can raise some funds for your film. Here's the clip. (music) 
you know, it's like you have three weeks to go find X amount of money for private capital. And I was able to do that. Um, That's a tough thing to do. I learned it from film school because I never had money to fund (laughs) my own movies. So I had to learn how to raise money. And it's something I think is really important is being learning the skill of how to raise money and close those deals. Because if you're able to do it, you retain control. Um, and it, it's, I feel like I, there's a producer I really like that Kristen works with named Charles Gillibert, who did Clouds of Sils Marie. And um, he, he says the best directors are producers as well. And I think it's true. Absolutely. If you were to give any, someone any advice about, about raising money, like the right way to do it versus the wrong way to do it, um, based on experience, what would you say? Have no shame. That's the biggest thing is I think there's a shame some people feel when they ask for money. No one likes asking for money. You just do it. And just really, it's like iterative practice. It's like people who, I mean, this is not quite the same, but like cold calls, feeling okay with that because you're doing it in pursuit of something that's more meaningful than whatever, you know, momentary embarrassment you may feel. Yeah, it's almost as if you have to get over that power imbalance. I always ask, this is kind of a dumb thing, but, you know, it's, I always ask myself in any situation, like, what would you do if you were not afraid? And usually the answer is, like, you do the thing you want to do. Yeah. And I think in these cases, um, the other thing I'd find, too, is, that, you know, like, in this case, this was, there's so many outlets now that are, you know, outside of the traditional studio system where there are so many opportunities, you just have to seek them out. And, um, but yeah, to me before doing that, being able to ask for private capital from friends of friends, family, friends, just learning that being okay with that will prepare you very well to when you sit and make deals with respective partners, because you know, in the back of your head that if you really needed to, you don't need these people. You can go find the money yourself. That's great. It kind of lowers the stakes a bit. Yeah. Well, it also it gives you. I mean, the other thing too is you have to be prepared to like walk away from. I don't know, these are the little things I've learned, but like being prepared to walk away from a deal, even if you really need the money. Like in the back of my head, being like, "Oh, I a hundred percent need this money," but being a, a, okay to just kind of be like, "It's a moving train. Like I gotta, you know." And I don't know. You learn kind of uh, believing that you were making your movie. Like you really can will it to life. You absolutely can. And it's absolutely, truly believing that you are making your movie. And I think that respective partners that might have capital, when they see that, they believe it too. So bringing your passion into the room with you and your vision. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it too is is uh, if you keep doing that over time, ultimately it breaks, right? Whatever obstacles in front of you. Um, you know, with Kristen's film, it took a couple years. Uh with this feature I'm doing, it's taken a couple of years too. It's uh, just keep going right every day. And things do take they take time in this industry. I think people get very discouraged when they when they do, but it's it's kind of just a cornerstone of the industry. I've found in my experience that it's like you take a lot of time and then it happens and it happens so fast and you just have to be prepared for it where it's like, oh, I always thought I was going to have like seven months to storyboard or something. But then it's like, oh no, I have to make this right now and strike while the iron's hot. But it's like, you know, like with this one, it was like two years of like development and kind of talking. And then it was like five to six months of like intensity. And I think similarly, I'm feeling that with another project I'm doing and um, but not just like committing to like, you don't wait for the perfect time in terms of, um, you trust the prep work you did. 
and the time helps in terms of creatively being able to return to something um yeah i know i found it to be really helpful Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your production company sure. that's behind this film and that you founded a year after you graduated. From yeah, Hawaii. I founded pretty quickly after graduating. I guess it was like a year. Um, after school, I took a year off. I was like a monk. Uh, I moved <laughs> home because I had no money. And I just wrote scripts. Like I just kept writing and writing because I just I figured that, you know, with all these new cameras and DSLRs, everyone can shoot stuff that looks pretty good. But the thing that you can never there's no tricks around is writing a good feature script like they're still trying to figure that out at the top level how there's to not a science <laughs> yeah and just how to crack that and how to just tell a good story so for me I really focused on writing and one of my scripts went through the Nickel Fellowship which was helpful and um, I think that uh, a lot of my team specifically Tony DiGiacomo um, from uh, college um, your you know, band guy yeah yeah we we had some two short films um and some other work and uh i guess we just wanted a banner i wanted i i, I for me the production companies that i really enjoy and, and respect and, and inspire me uh are ones where all their movies can kind of be on a bookshelf and it feels like it came from the same author where there is a certain brand there even if it's not easily defined even if it's a feeling um, and and I guess that's I, I saw it almost as sounds corny but almost like a work of art in itself um, also you balance that with the painful reality of having to keep the lights on um, so you know I, I was I found it useful in terms of branding we also have an animation department we've done animation and I found um, this great animator named Jacob Kafka so he we we've done some animation with him and um, yeah, I think it's it's. I wanted an infrastructure to create the things that I wanted to do, and do it with the people that I really like working with. Um, and I also found it useful in terms of like raising money and things of that nature. Having a central point, um, yeah, and it's something. It's I, I consider it like my life's work. I know I'm young, but in a way where. So, what were the first steps that you took to coalescing the production company into an entity? I mean, I found it in my bedroom in Arizona, and Tony was in his bedroom in New Jersey, and we it was founded via video conferencing, you know? It's like, I mean, it's different now. Like, if you, there's no excuses. Like, you can start a company by video conferencing and by staying in touch with people digitally and just cutting your overhead. Um, and that's really how it began, is I just was in my parents' bedroom, and then, then I went and moved and lived with my grandparents right outside of LA and like when I first worked with Kristen man I was commuting from like Anaheim I was you know I was struggling and it was uh but the the moment you can pay your bills and do it just from the work you care about it's all worth it in terms of there's no feeling quite like being able to buy your groceries with like money from work that you are proud of and that you love and you can't do that without dedicating x amount of hours to it so it was uh I mean, there was all, there's always kind of a struggle period, and the first year is usually the hardest. But um, And then you find kind of the nuances of how to keep the lights on and how to keep, you know, we have two full-time employees, um, and then we have the rest of the people are kind of consultants and partners on respective per project, um, and just making sure that everyone can kind of keep their head above water and keep surviving, too. Do you do commercials in order We do. We have done commercial work. We did uh, a campaign for Snapchat that was successful and um, kind of allowed us other opportunities. 
And, um, but again, I try to be specific. I mean, I maybe I, there's sometimes when I feel like I should have taken that opportunity because it would have helped me have X amount of money in my bank account. But I, uh, it was worth it for waiting to find the, in my opinion thus far, um, for waiting to find the commercials that felt like I wasn't just selling something, but actually had something meaningful to say. Um, cause I also think those are better commercials. Um, so we have done commercial work and, uh, starlightstudios.tv, you can check them out. And, um, I think right now we're very focused on narrative, um, because for whatever, we've found some type of equation that allows us to live and, you know, buy our groceries while also doing narrative work. And, um, we have like two upcoming projects that are certainly, uh, taking up a lot of our time. Next up is a clip from our episode, Flying Lotus, on how rejecting film school made him a greater director. While Cuso may have premiered at Sundance, I didn't get a chance to sit down with Flying Lotus until months later when we were all back in New York City. He proved to be the perfect guest for our show, however, telling us all, once and for all, why film school isn't necessary, but also how it may be detrimental to showing the world your own unique voice. Here's the clip. And uh, we were just talking a little bit before we started this recording about yeah. how, uh, you know, we're no film school. Yeah. You went to film school. I did, yeah. You are. Bit, yeah. Would you call yourself a product of film school, though? or I actually wouldn't, man, because uh, I feel like after I was, uh, after film school, I, uh, I felt like I was, like, definitely, like, a product of that, and I wasn't happy with it anymore like I was I felt like I had more ideas before I went there and then I I felt like I learned that my reasoning was wrong you know like you know like they were they really did make it seem like you couldn't do things because it was cool just because you thought it was cool it's not good that's not good it's not good enough to do something just because you think it's cool and I I think I, I really internalized a lot of things that they told me like that and maybe took it the wrong way or whatever but I think that I I took a lot of things from that experience as like the Bible and how it has to be, you know, and it I t- it took me years to unlearn that shit, you know. And the reason why like you know, all the films that you see are the reason why they're all like like the same now is because there people have these uh ideas that it has to be a certain way and it has to be done a certain way. You have to have like the treatment and the outline and the scene cards and all this shit. And it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't, you know, I made Kuso in a very free form kind of way, like how I make my music. And that was a, something that I had to learn. Um, and I, I, I was really inspired by a friend of mine who, uh, who made, makes films and music. He like Quentin Dupier, he did rubber and wrong, oh, and wrong yeah. cops yeah. and all that stuff. And he does amazing music as Mr. Wazo, and I've been a huge fan of uh, both sides of him. Um, and he told me he was like, you know, make music like you make, or make movies like you make your music. And it took me a while to figure that out. And uh, but I get it now, you know, because it, it, when I make music, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I just sit in the chair and then I start experimenting, tinkering, and then things start to happen. The wheels start to turn. This makes sense, and then here we are, you know. Sometimes I have an idea, but it's a very rare thing. You know? So then how does that translate to film when it's you're... like writing. Writing. Writing, yeah. Gotcha. It's like, I don't know where we're going. 
I don't need to know where we're going. You just need to start writing and let it be. And and also, too, like not waiting too long to make these things, you know, not talking yourself, psyching yourself out of it. Like you can find a million reasons not to pursue your idea. Mm. You know, you could you could sit around and like talk yourself into a hole about how you're not prepared, how you don't know the characters, whatever, this, that, whatever. You could do all that all day. You know, I don't have a shot list. I don't have this. I don't have that. I can't without this. That's bullshit. It's And it's like we can talk ourselves and think ourselves to, you know, to the, the bottomless pit of self-doubt, man, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a really dangerous thing that I uh, I spent way too long doing with films. And and now I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, just keeping going with the... With the projects and stuff. So earlier you said um, that film school kind of was telling you to do things that aren't necessarily what you thought are cool. What did film school try to uh, instill in you? I think film school, more than anything, tried to give you an honest... Well, the school I went to, LA Film School, I think they tried as best as they could to give you honest and... uh, experience of what the film industry is like in trying to make a film and all that stuff. I think they really did their best to do that and they really did come at you in a way like, well, if, you know, your ideas you know, this is why these movies work. This is why they're classics. And if you wanna be in Hollywood, you're gonna have to work in these ways to make these things, you know. They they didn't have like you know, experimental filmmaking at LA Film School. Maybe they do now, but like that wasn't the thing then. You know, so and I didn't, I didn't know if I'm, I didn't know I was an experimental filmmaker. I didn't know what my thing was, but I know I didn't want to make, I didn't, I didn't want to make Jurassic Park. I don't want to do that. I, I enjoy that movie, but that's not what I'm here to say. Um, so it's, it's a tough thing, and I think it's, it might be a tough place to be for a kid who's you know, on the outskirts of, you know, and like the, the kid who lives in his sketchbook and all that stuff, the kid who's like building his own worlds and universes and stuff. It's harder for those people. But at the same time, you should also know that, you know, you can make these things. You can build it on your own. You don't need, you don't need a, a billion dollars or, you know, you don't have to have it all worked out. You can figure it out in the making. Right. Sometimes that's the fun. You know, that, that is the fun part. So then in your own experience trying to get Cuso made, yeah. how would you say that differed from, you know, what they were trying to, how they were trying to tell you to make a movie? Like, what was your yeah. own? Um, well, there was a lot of things. I think mostly in just the preparation for it, I think, you know, preparing to make Cuso was a bit more against the grain. You know, um, I said in workshop anything or i guess like flesh out you know scene cards and all that shit i didn't do all that kind of stuff that they want you to do in school i didn't uh you know i think for i did show up with storyboards and i did have the scripts written and all that stuff there was a bit of it but it was i think it was just like a i had more of a like be open to the moment approach to it when I could be you know like there's certain things you have to prepare for with like prosthetics and there's certain things like practical effects whatever you have to know what you're doing you have to know all that stuff but I uh, 
I had to learn to just be okay with like, you know what, in the moment, I might feel different. And that was something that I think they don't want you to think about in film school. They want you to be ready. They want you to be like, they don't want you to be in that moment where you're like clueless or whatever. But I think I thrive in that space a little bit. You know, I'm like, shit, well, I don't know where we're going, but we can figure it out because we're a team, we're a crew, you know. I, I, and I, that's the fun part of filmmaking. And I think if you like just stick to the storyboard shot list thing or whatever, that might miss out on some really organic shit. Yeah, a lot of the times, you know, you make the most exciting creative decisions when you're in a place of discomfort. This next clip is from an episode titled Landline, How to Avoid the Sophomore Slump and Make Your Second Feature. Director Gillian Robespierre and producer Elizabeth Holm collaborated on Obvious Child back in 2014, and they got back together this year to give us the rom-com drama Landline. Liz Nord sat down with them after the film's release to find out how one can find a collaborator that will last forever. Take a listen. You talked a lot about your collaboration, about finding each other and also finding other people to add to your circle or cycle through. So how does someone find their best collaborators? (laughs) (laughs) J-Date. Uh, in our case, we met, um, at like a film mixer at IFP. So I think you often find collaborators where there's like free alcohol and, uh, and desperation. Um, but, uh, yeah. And J-Date. And yeah, exactly. (laughs) The alcohol's not always free on J-Dates all year. Um, I don't know. I, I think, uh. Being open to the idea that anyone could be your collaborator. I mean, we met at a film mixer, but we're not actually there to find collaborators on our projects. Um, but we found friends in each other and uh, just enjoyed talking to each other and we're not pitching each other projects. And I think in general, filmmakers like just pitch way too much. <laughs> and if you can like stop talking about your work and just start talking to a human, um, and listen uh and i think that's where collaboration comes because you're open and you're not trying to like sell someone something you're just seeing the ways that you connect um be yourself right that that's uh that's true don't be an asshole so true um yeah trying to think of more well, so, I mean, you really sort of good. pointed to something without actually saying it, that you met at this IFP event. So one of the pieces of advice is, like, go to these things. Like, go to filmmaker mixers. Go to festivals. We're saying that all the time here. Yeah, for sure. I think I, for many years, was afraid of those things. And this one I went to because it was, A, near my house, and uh, I was feeling extra brave that night. And I downed a couple of wines before I stumbled (laughs) into Liz. Um, And, you know, even if Liz and I hadn't met that night, I'm still glad that I pushed myself to to go out and do that. You know, it's it's they're uncomfortable and they often feel like speed dating and um, blind dates and all the worst parts of dating. But 
sometimes you you find somebody who you connect with and then you marry them and then you get divorced <laughs> no <laughs> um and and landline in yeah. theaters yeah <laughs> i think it's more like you know like polyamory you have multiple relationships going on right for sure so, and i think what's good about our movie is that what we're trying to not what's good about it but what we say often in our movie that it's a family that is taking on new shape and there'll always be a family um so you know hopefully we're in this business for a long time and we find projects together that we can work on and and as individuals grow um so it's it's all love Up next, we have a clip from an episode called Lemon, What to Do When You've Lost All Hope for Your Film. Jansica Bravo and her partner Brett Gilman had a lot of trouble getting Bravo's debut feature Lemon off the ground, and in their interview with Liz Nord, a lot of frustrations eked out from their conversation. The advice they gave for how to deal or not deal with these frustrations, however, is worth taking to heart. Take a listen. who you are like we call it independent filmmaking but it's really interdependent like you just have to have some other people in your corner it sounds and in this case for sure yeah it it's it's important you know it's um you have to have allies it's a collaborative process and yeah even if you're a white dude you need like people backing you up because it at some point it's going to be a fight it's you just know, easier to get whether them it's over, if you're a white dude. Right. Over, yeah. Exactly. It, it, yeah. People are more likely to support white dudes. So, um, so and, and, and every step of the, of the process, is, there's going to be fights, you know, whether it's over logistical financial things or whether it's over creative things. And there, it is a business made up of difficult people. Um, and that's putting it nicely. So... <laughs> You need it's 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 a battle. This film, everything that you do, everything that we do is is covered in blood. <laughs> it's just it's not easy. But the good news about that is is that I'd like to think that that is all put on screen. All of that stress, all of that angst, all of that feeling of being dismissed, all of that uh, aggression coming towards her and all of that aggression going from her that's all put on the screen and it's like in the soul of the piece that's one of the reasons that her work is so exciting to me whether I was involved in it or not and it's it's pretty wild because I I don't really when I watch myself it's not like I don't like watching myself but I'm also like very much like that's not me you know a lot of the time so it's watching this film is 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 very much like for me, it was watching her work, and uh, and that's what I see. Okay, final, final question. Yes. So, again, we're speaking to filmmakers, and just to come all the way full circle, if somebody's at that place, if someone listening is at that place that sounds like you both were at the beginning of this process where you're, like, creatively frustrated and a little stuck, and you feel like people aren't hearing you, but you have something to say, what advice do you have? Uh, I really would say that if you feel like you can do anything else, you should do it. That's uh, what I always say. Well, but this you is the thing. I didn't me. steal that from you. No, my assistant dean of my school, I've told you this story. No, do not you think. Haven't. Yes, I have. I Robert Bessida from North Carolina <laughs> School of the Arts. 
he sat down in our business class, which was basically him just like telling amazing stories of him being in the theater and being an agent before he became assistant dean of the school. He said, he's like, I'm telling you right now, if you really think you can do anything else, do it because a life in this work is really hard. And it is true. I mean, we have our movie coming out in New York. It came out last weekend in L.A. It's gone, you know, a lot of people have loved it. Not everyone. I mean, it's a polarizing piece, you know, as work like this often is. Uh, and, um, and we still, we were with some friends last night who were all in, like, you know, the same line of work. We were all like, should we quit? But we can't. We don't know how to do anything else. And we have to do it in order to feel, um, in order to feel truly alive. And, and also, the other advice I would give is, what is the practical thing that you can do to get to where you really want to get to? Not what you think the industry wants. The industry is to be ignored. All of this math that people do to get their work made, it is the biggest lie. It is the biggest lie. Um, that that people tell themselves and it's actually i think like a mode of escape that people use to n actually not do the work that they need to do and that is just just making making sure that it is a true expression of yourself and trying to get people on board to to get that made and that is really the thing and and if you're doing that it's uh, i believe it 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 somehow finds its way but it's you might not feel like it ever found its way, but it will. <laughs> Finally, for this week's edition, here's a pretty meta piece of a conversation I had with Ingrid Ghost West writer-director Matt Spicer about the role social media can play on getting your film made. The episode is called, Why Making a Film is the Only Thing That Can Ever Really Prepare You for Your First Film. Here's the clip. I'm personally, you know, curious about what your thoughts are about social media. What are the pros and cons about social media? First, I guess, for just our generation, but then it, it seems like it's becoming more and more of a crucial factor of how many followers you have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on Instagram or Twitter mm -hmm. or whatever, in casting, in building a reputation for yourself as a filmmaker. Where do you think the value in that lies or... Conversely, how is it detrimental? I mean, it's such a big topic. I mean, I think I have very conflicting feelings about it. I, I love social media. I think it's an amazing tool for, uh, you know, whether it's for self-promotion, whether it's for connecting with other people, whether it's for surrounding yourself with viewpoints that are different from your own or from people who are in your immediate sort of circle. Um, but I think it's, it can also bring out the worst in you in people and I think it gives you you know it's very anonymous or it can be very anonymous so it's easy to do things without any sort of repercussions or not really facing having to face any repercussions for things that you post or do or whatever um so I think it's you know it's like anything it's a double-edged sword and it's really depends on how you use it and what you're bringing to it um and, you know, my struggles with it are mostly just it feeling so my use of it feeling compulsive and feeling like I'm not there's no intention behind it. I'm just like, oh, I'm standing in line waiting for a coffee. Let's check Instagram, see what everyone's up to. And it being that kind of just or I'm like feeling awkward at a party. Like, let's just look at my phone, you know, rather than stepping outside of my comfort zone and, and 
introduce myself to somebody who I don't know. You know, like that kind of a thing where it becomes a retreat versus uh, a means of engagement mm-hmm. um, or it just becomes thoughtless, rote, like, you know, habit. As a director, would you rather cast someone who has like 10 million Instagram followers or would you rather cast someone who has like the talent to pull off the vision that you have in place? I mean, it's one of those, it's so frustrating when I hear that people cast people just based on how many followers they have because the reality is if if the pro- end product isn't good, it doesn't matter how many followers you have to promote it, people are going to smell it out and, and they're not going to want to see it, you right. know? And so... I think if you find the perfect actor and they happen to have 10 million Instagram followers to promote it, great. Then you hit the jackpot, you know? Um, But I think the end product always has to be, I don't think people should ever choose someone who they think is maybe their second choice Mm -hmm. just because they have more Instagram followers, like, or Twitter, Twitter followers. Is it a viable means of production? Like, will you really be able to raise more money if you have uh, someone that has that many followers that they can like reach out to? Oh, it definitely does. I mean, in terms of the studio level, I yeah. mean, they make definitely make decisions that way. I just think it's a really silly metric, you know, and it's a very corporate kind of way of looking at it. And it's frustrating because I think people with that perspective feel like monkeys could do our job, you know? And I just think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I think it's like there's a, there's, there's not a science to it. It's an art, you know, and I think that you can't just plug numbers into a spreadsheet and expect a certain result. You know, um, there's an alchemy to it that I think is beyond that. So that's that always frustrates me when I hear stuff like that. And but it is a great tool. And I understand why they, you know, any way, especially with stuff that's lower budget, you know, any way that you can get the word out about your thing that you're doing and, and hopefully cut through the clutter obviously is useful. I just don't think it should ever be the first decision that you make. You know, if you had, I guess if you had two actors and you thought they were both perfect for the part and one of them has 10 million followers and one of them has a thousand followers, well then, yeah, I guess maybe go with the guy who has 10 million followers, but I just don't think it ever works out like that, quite like that. Yeah. But I will say, ironically, for a film about social media, we cast O'Shea Aubrey actually reached out to him on via Twitter. We didn't huh. go through, you know, the proper channels in terms of approaching his agent uh, and sending his agent the script and then waiting for him to read it, whatever. Aubrey, you know, and this is what's great about having someone like Aubrey being one of your producers is that, you know, she he followed her on Twitter and I think they had they had met briefly or, or at a award show and she just DM'd him and said, hey, like, you want to read the script you want to do this movie with me and then he they ended up having a meeting after that because of that and so we were able to back channel in a way I think if we had gone through the sort of proper channels uh we probably wouldn't have gotten him in the movie you know so it, it does like there's a democratization to um the process now that I think you can cut through a lot of the clutter because of social media and things will get attention because of social media that they wouldn't necessarily if you we are all forced to go through the sort of mainstream media or the regular channels like mm-hmm. i mean we don't have as a film you know we're we're not in a position where we can buy tv ads for this movie you know so we're doing a lot of promotion via uh the internet and yeah. via social media and all that stuff and we're really relying on people like No Film School, you know, to 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 
get the word out and and so you have to you know you you have to hit attack more sort of angles and hit it from many different angles rather than just saying you know back in the old days you could just say all right just go on the tonight show with johnny carson yeah <laughs> pump some tv ads out there some trailers and then we're all good you know it was a lot simpler now you know you have to you're you're just like all right we have to do a thousand interviews yeah, you know yeah, yeah. from all these different outlets and hope that you know we find our our audience that way but um you know, but I think it's cool because I think you can a film like ours wouldn't have necessarily been successful with that old model. Maybe it would have, but but the fact is, you can still be successful um, on a smaller scale and in a way in a different way because uh, if you make a film for a responsible budget, you know, in the correct budget, then I think there's there's an audience for any film out there, um, and it's just a matter of how do I tap into that. That's all for this week. Be sure and tune in the next couple weeks for even more of our best advice from 2017. If you like what we've been doing, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you use and give us a five-star rating if that happens to be iTunes. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter, and we'll be back for our regular Indie Film Weekly episode next week. See you then, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.